Hey guys, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Matt Carter, lead pastor here at Sagemont Church. And we are going through a series that's gonna take us all the way through Christmas Eve that we're calling Songs of Our Savior. We're taking an in-depth look at some of the most famous Christmas hymns. So we're gonna be looking at O Holy Night. Now, uh, how many of y'all love O Holy Night? Oh, if you don't, I'm gonna pray for you, all right? I'm gonna pray that you go to the Connection Center after the service, speak to a pastor about that. It is hands down one of my most favorite Christmas songs, if not my most favorite song of all time. And so we're actually gonna be looking at it for two weeks. I tried to get it all packed into one week and I just couldn't do it, there's too much there. The origins of it are interesting. So I think it's worth taking time today to talk about the, the origins of the song a little bit. The, the lyrics were originally written in the late 1840s by a French winemaker, obviously not a Southern Baptist. He's a winemaker and poet named Placide Capote. And Capote was, uh, was born and raised Catholic, but in his uh, later years and adulthood, he walked away from the faith. And the only time that he'd go to mass was Christmas and Easter. Well, he was friends with a priest of the parish there and the priest was kept trying to get him to come back to church and get him back in the fold and never would do it. And so it was in 1847, the priest came to him. Capote knew he was a poet and said, here's what I want you to do. Would you be willing to write a poem for us for Christmas mass? And reluctantly, because he wasn't a strong believer, Capote said that he would. Well, he was out on a carriage ride. A couple weeks later, Christmas was approaching. It was early December. And he was out on a carriage ride to Paris, this long carriage ride. He had brought a Bible with him because he knew he needed to write this poem. He pulls out his Bible and he began to read the Christmas story in Luke with the idea that he wanted to look at that story from the perspective of the people who might have witnessed it and get his mind around what it would have been like to witness the birth of Christ on that first winter's night. Well, by the end of the ride to Paris, he'd written the song. It's, oh, holy night, stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So fall on your knees and hear the angel voices, O night, O night divine, O night that Christ was born. Now, we don't know. That's a pretty good song for a non-believer, amen? We don't know if he ever gave his life to Christ. He never said, but he did admit that he was profoundly moved by the lyrics of his own song. And if anything, that shows the power of the word of God, that somebody can pick up this book and read the Christmas story and write one of the most hauntingly beautiful descriptions of the birth of Christ ever in the history of the world. And what makes the song so amazing is not that it just talks about the birth of Christ, but it does an amazing job at getting to the heart of what the birth of Christ meant for you and for me. What it meant for you and for me and, uh, and for us. And that's important for us to remember because I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the older I get, the more hectic life becomes in many ways, and especially this time of year, because you just take the normal routine of life that we have all year long, and then on top of it, this time of year, you add eight Christmas parties, 
And on top of that, you got to decorate your home. you got to decorate your office, decorate the church like those wonderful people did out there. Didn't they do a great job? It's amazing. Um, <clears throat> decorate church, office, classroom. And then on top of that, you got to, like a crazy person, go to the mall and try to shop for Christmas presents. And then, and then you've got to, to travel. And then you got your family. And then you got all these traditions and things that you got to do. And if you're anything like me, because of the busyness of the holiday season, you wake up sometimes on December 26 with this profound sense that you've completely missed something. That, that you were created to experience more during this Christmas season, but you missed it because of all the busyness. And what that thing is, I've sort of put my finger on that, that I sometimes sense that I miss is that I, I was created and meant during this season, really all year long, but during this season to, to give my mind and my heart space and time to get to a place of worship. It was like, right, y'all sing, y'all sing those Christmas songs and you just came in off the street and you're just singing them. Some of you weren't just singing them, but a lot of us are just singing them instead of really getting to a place of worshiping God because of the amazing, unbelievable thought of the incarnation of Christ. And that's one of the reasons I love this song because maybe with the exception, no, 100%, with the exception of getting into the word of God and really reading through the Christmas story and dwelling on it and pondering on it and let the Holy Spirit speak to me through his word, with the exception of the word of God, this song, Oh, Holy Night has been one of the greatest things that God has used to get my heart to that place of worship that I hope you and I get to. And so my prayer is over the next two weeks and on Christmas Eve when we pack into this place and we're holding the candle in the air and we're singing this song, Oh, Holy Night, that you would have moved way beyond that place of just singing songs and singing lyrics, but that you are singing to God, that you are worshiping him for all that he has done for us. Now, before I, uh, I, I jump into it too much, um, I want to start with the first line. He, uh, the author just paints this visual picture of the night of Christ's birth. He says, oh, holy night. I love that he called it holy. It means set apart. It was definitely a set apart night. He said, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. And then the next line that he says is, in my opinion, one of the greatest lyrics in the history of songwriting. But before I get into it, let me give you some context about what he's going to say. Last week, we looked at O Come Emmanuel, and we talked about that that's a song that speaks of the anticipation or the longing of the people of God for the Messiah to finally come to us and make everything right what this next line in O Holy Night does is it speaks to why the people of God longed for him to come. This next line talks about why the people of God so desperately needed and wanted for the Messiah to show up. And here's the line. It's long lay the world in sin and error pining. That's the reason. The people of God longed for the Messiah, for the Savior, because long lay the world in sin and in error, pining. I love that word pining. Isn't that a great line? Word pining means to mourn, means to suffer. And that non-believing French winemaker poet guy hit the theological nail on the head. 
Because until that first Christmas night, for generation after generation after generation, the people of God waited, mourning and suffering in the hopelessness of their sin until he appeared. And so let's take a minute and let's get our minds around why I say that, that the people of God, before the Messiah Savior came, they mourned and suffered in the hopelessness of their sin, okay? Well, you know the story. When God created us, put us in the garden, and um, he created us for one primary reason. Why, don't shout it out, but why did God create us? Like, why did he put us in the garden? He put us in the garden, he created us so that we'd be in relationship with him, so that we would love and know and experience and be in an intimate day after day, moment by moment relationship with him, the living God. But what happened? We sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, three things happened. Number one, Death entered into the world. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so the moment they sinned, death entered into the world. But another thing happened. Not only did death enter the world because of our sin, but because of our sin and because God is holy, we were separated from what we were created to do. We were created to be in relationship with God because God's holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so we lost that intimate face-to-face amazing relationship with God that we were created for. And that's where that longing comes that I talked about last week. But then there's an interesting third thing that happened when sin entered the world is that through a series of events, the people of God became keenly aware of just how much God hates sin. A sin's a bad thing. It's not a neutral thing. It's not a sort of bad thing. Sin's a really bad thing. God hates sin. And God, uh, you know, after sin enters into the world, sin began to grow and grow and grow to the point that the Lord looked down at the earth and the scripture says that God saw that the thoughts of man were always evil continually. That sounds pretty bad. And so he sent a flood, he destroyed the entire earth except Noah and his extended family. Noah, the extended family, repopulated the earth, but what happened? They kept on sinning. And sin began to spread and spread and spread. Now at that point, because God is completely holy and completely righteous, it is insane to me that he just didn't wipe out everybody. Y'all with me? But instead of saying, all right, I'm done with these people, right, which could have, he went to work instead to restore us back to himself by him paying the penalty of sin for us. And he began by giving us the law. He gave us the law. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. But here's the thing, and I want you to listen really carefully. The law was meant to be a guideline in which the people of God could know what his standards were, right? So that they could follow him. For the law, they didn't know what his standards were. They didn't know what God wanted. They didn't know what sin was. They didn't know what righteousness was. And so he gave us the law. Says, this is the law. Here is my standard. But let me ask you guys a question. How good were the Israelites at following the law? They stunk at it. Just like you and me, right? Not very good at following the law at all. So just like you and me, they broke the law all the time. Now listen, really carefully. This is really huge. Instead of the law being this tool that caused righteousness in us, what the law did is it made them more aware of their sin. It's actually a biblical concept. 
I'm going to show you why. Romans 7, 7. This is Paul speaking about that concept. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now listen, what Paul said there is that the law did not keep us from sinning. If the law kept us from sinning, Jesus would have never had to come. But what he said is the law didn't keep us from sinning, but what the, the law did instead is it revealed our brokenness. It revealed our inability to follow the law. It revealed our desperate need for a savior, okay? And then God, when he saw how, how broken it was and our inability to follow the law and that we kept on sinning, he took another step to reconcile us back to himself. He created the sacrificial system. He knew we couldn't follow the law and so he created a sacrificial system which is a way that we could have our sin temporarily atoned for. And so he created a system where we could kill an animal, we could shed its blood, and when that, the blood of that animal was, was shed, then our sins would be atoned for for the year. Okay, but what would happen? You'd show up with your family, shed the blood of an animal, all your sins would be forgiven, you're feeling righteous, you're feeling good in the sight of, of God, but what would happen? You'd wake up the next day and you'd sin again. And there you are, less than 24 hours later, covered in the guilt and the shame of your sin. Now, real quickly, we're, we're digging through a bunch of theology here, and I'll get out of it here in just a second, but hang with me. Hebrews 10 talks about this never-ending cycle of sin and sacrifice and sacrifice and sin and sin and sacrifice. Hebrews 10.1 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Did y'all hear that? The law... Is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all. It would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But watch what it says in verse three. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Did you catch it? Those sacrifices, what did they do? They're an annual reminder of sin. You'd offer the sacrifice and you'd be doing it and it hits you like a ton of bricks. I'm just gonna sin tomorrow. And it was an annual reminder of just how messed up we were. In verse four, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews is saying it is impossible for bulls and for goat's blood to permanently take your sin away. It needed a different kind of blood. And so let me ask you guys a question. What do you think the law and the sacrificial system produced in the people of God? What, what do you think it made them feel? I mean, Hebrews just told us a little bit of it. What do you think it made them feel? Well, I'm guessing that the first thing that the law and the sacrificial system made them feel was hopelessness, a sense of hopelessness. People knew God's standard. They knew what it was. He gave them the law, but no matter how hard they tried, they broke his standard over and over again, and they were forgiven for a little while, but then they'd break his standard again. So I imagine it would produce in them hopelessness. I imagine it also produced in them weariness. 
weariness. They love God. They desperately wanted to please him, but no matter how hard they tried, they always fell short. And I'm guessing that after a lifetime of trying desperately to follow the law and do what's right, but always failing, I would imagine, because I've experienced it myself, that that produces a sense of weariness. And there's one final thing that I think the law and the sacrificial system and sin and the inability to follow the law produced in people, and that is worthlessness. Worthlessness. Um, God clearly told his people, he said, I want you to be holy like I'm holy. But his people, deep down inside, they knew they weren't holy. And year after year after year, the enemy, I guarantee you, did to them what he does to us, which is whisper in their ear, you keep failing. You keep falling short. Therefore, you have no worth in the eyes of God. That was the state of the people of God for centuries and centuries and generations and generations. Hopelessness, weariness, worthlessness. And that's why that line is so amazing. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, mourning. And suffering, but, but in the midst of the hopelessness, in the midst of the weariness, in the, in the midst of the worst, worthlessness, the, the prophets began to speak. They began to speak and they began to utter, almost in a whisper, an unimaginable word, and that word was Messiah, a Savior. Prophets began to speak of a Messiah, a Savior that would come to the people of God and he would save them from the hopelessness and the weariness and the worthlessness of their sin, but for century after century after century, generation after generation, they waited. They waited in the hopelessness and the weariness and the worthlessness of their sin. Until one night, one holy night, after all that waiting, after all that mourning and pining, Jesus, the Messiah, was finally born. Finally. And this guy that wrote this, in describing that moment, wrote one of the most beautiful lines I've ever heard in the history of music. He said, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt it's worth. Gosh, I love that. Let me ask you guys a question. Can y'all relate to that feeling? I can. Can you relate to what the people of God felt before the arrival of Christ? Like, I, I, can, you, can you relate to in your attempt to please God, in your attempt to follow the law, in your attempt to follow God's standards, and your inability to do it, which is why Jesus had to come, can you relate to how they felt? Hopeless, weary, Worthless. I know I can. I know what God's standards are. I've read the Bible enough. I've preached enough. I know what his standards are, but I am not great at meeting them very often. I know his call on my life to be holy. I'm also very aware of how often I don't walk in holiness like I should. 
Um, and so what do you and I do in those moments when we, the Spirit speaks to us and makes us aware now that we are not following God's standards? Even though we're forgiven, we're not following His standards. What do we do? We, just like these people, we try harder. We think, man, this time I'm gonna get it. This time I'm gonna get it right. This time I'm gonna do what God created me to do. Paul talked about it in Romans 7. I do what I don't wanna do and I don't do what I ought to do. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? And when we get to that place where we realize we can't do it as hard as we try, what does it produce in you and in me? I'm telling you, I cannot tell you, and this is not everybody. Not everybody struggles with this, but I want you to know this is what I struggle with. I can't tell you how many times when I look at my sin and my inability to meet the standards of God, how often that has made me feel worthless. Y'all with me? I should have gotten it right by now. I should have figured this out by now. No way God loves me. No way God has pleased me. It's a lie, but it's what I feel. And 2,000 years ago, on a cold winter's night in Bethlehem, God left heaven and he came to this planet not only to save us from our sin, that would have been more than we deserved, amen? But what I'm about to show you is one of the other reasons that he came to this planet was to show us definitively just how valuable we are to him. And let me show you why I say that. Talk about why I say that. I shared this last Christmas Eve, um, and I'm gonna share a, a portion of it again because I, the longer I'm alive, the more this story just gets all over me. I just love it. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever stopped for one second and thought about and wondered why that the very first people that God told about the coming of the Savior Messiah were shepherds? Like, have you ever just stopped to think about that for a second? It's the greatest moment in the history of the world. It's this moment that Generations of the people of God have been longing for and pining for, and it finally arrives, and the very first people that God chose to tell were some guys that watch sheep. Have you ever thought about that? Think about how unbelievable that is. And if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense apart from what I'm about to say. You got the birth of the Messiah for crying out loud. Now, if you're God, or I'm God, which thankfully we're not, but if we were God, what would you do? The long-awaited Messiah that the generations of people of God have been longing and pining for is finally here. What do you do? You at least put it on Facebook, amen? <laughs> you wanna tell as many people as you can, you gotta get like six, 700 likes at least. You put it on Facebook, but this is before Facebook, so what do you do? Who do you go tell first? He's here. <laughs> God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, he's here, he came. I don't know about you, I'm probably going to the person that can have the most influence in getting the message out. I go to a king. There were kings. God could have easily, easily sent Gabriel to the king. But he didn't. Go to a religious leader. Could have easily easily sent the angel to the head temple priest. He didn't do it. He, come, he came um, and told some shepherds. Now, if you've been around church a while, you know this, but um, shepherds, lowest rung in society, lowest rung. They were horribly poor. They were... Um, 
they lived outside, and because they lived outside constantly, they were considered ceremonially unclean, which is a big deal back then. And so because they were poor and because they were ceremonially unclean, nobody would have anything to do with them. People thought they were unclean. And so these guys were outcasts. They were nobodies. And if anybody, listen guys, if anybody in that society, maybe with the exception of lepers, if anybody in that society would have felt worthless, it would have been those guys. It would have been the shepherds. I would imagine they, they woke up most days with one prevailing truth staring them in the face that because I'm a shepherd, because this is my identity, I have no value. I have no worth. And one of the most unbelievable moments in the history of the world, the long-awaited Messiah was finally born. And what God does next, I believe, says more about his heart for us than maybe any other place in the entire scripture. It's in Luke chapter two, verse eight. There's some shepherds. Christ is born. He's in the world. God is in the world with flesh on. And then the next line, it says, in the the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people And then verse 11, I love this, I love this verse. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The guys, let that just rest on your heart this morning. The single solitary greatest moment in human history just happened. And the people out of all the world that God chose to tell first were a group of unclean, outcast, worthless nobodies. And he came to them. And he said, today in the city of David, I want you to know there's been born for you. Yes, you, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And what the scripture says next is, is pretty cool. Their response is, is pretty awesome. For the first time in their lives, they had hope. They felt the value of God for the first time. In Luke 2, 20, it says, and the shepherds went back. It says they were glorifying and praising God, right? For all that they'd heard and seen just has been told to him. Now think about it. They hear this news. Today in the city of David has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And they left the sheep and they went glorifying and praising God. And I have a feeling that they were Glorifying and praising God for two reasons. Number one, pretty straightforward. I think they were glorifying God and praising God because they knew the scripture and they knew that the long-awaited Messiah was finally here. When an angel shows up and starts talking to you, you can believe their news. And it hits them. Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. But I'm convinced in the core of my being that the second reason that they were worshiping and praising God was because it hit them like a ton of bricks for the first time in their entire lives they realize that I may not have value to this world, but I have value to Almighty God. He came to me and he spoke to me about the Messiah. This line, I hope, means more to you than it ever has this year. Long lay the world in sin and in error pining till he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. I want to start landing the plane today by telling you a story that um, I, uh, as I look back on my life, there's been, I'm going to tell you the story and then I'm going to pray. We're going to be done. We're going to sing a holy night. As I look back on my life, there is a, a handful of times where things have happened that I can't explain apart from there being a God. And I, I, it's too big of a deal to be a coincidence. And this, this is in the top two, right? Maybe, well, top three. I think you gotta put my salvation, that's pretty unbelievable. And my calling to ministry, which is crazy. And then, and then this is number three. And, um, and it's one of the most miraculous, powerful movements of God, him displaying himself in a tangible way that I've ever seen. After I tell you the story, it's either the greatest coincidence in the history of the world or there's a God. Um, started back when I was 11 years old. I was sitting in a pew. We, we, we sat in pews back then. Y'all remember pews? And uh, we were sitting in a pew and my mother was sitting beside me. And um, we used to sit down sometimes when we sang. Do y'all remember that too? We were sitting while we were singing Because He Lives, which doesn't make much sense. And, uh, but we were sitting, singing Because He Lives, and I was 11, and my mom leans down to talk to me, and I'm thinking she's probably mad at me because she used to get mad at me all the time in church, tell me to shut up and be still and stuff. But she leans down out of the blue, and she says, Matt, when I die, I want you to bury me in a red dress and I want you to sing Because He Lives. Shirley Ann Carter was born in 1944. What, what would she be now? Is that 77, 78? But this was, gosh, however old she was when I was 11. She says, when I die, I want you to bury me in a red dress and I want you to play Because He Lives at my funeral. Now, for some crazy reason, as an 11-year-old kid, that stuck with me. And on November 2nd of 2001, she suddenly passed away, far too young, tragically passed away. I'm a big-time mama's boy. And it was sudden, and it was tragic, and it, and it broke my heart. So the time comes for her funeral, and I remembered her saying that as an 11-year-old kid. And so I told everybody, I was like, hey, I remember this moment in FBC Athens where she looked down at me. She said, Matt, I want you to bury me in a red dress and sing Because He Lives at my funeral. And so that's what we did. We buried her in a red dress. And the last song we sang was Because He Lives. About a month goes by, and it's actually in December. And I was invited on a trip to go to Belize, South America, and um, work with dental missions or something. I don't remember all that we were doing. And so month later, I'm struggling to lost my mom, and we go to Belize on this mission trip, and we were all hanging around one night. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening, singing, worshiping, going through the day. And one of the local pastors shows up at where we were hanging out. He walks in. Everybody says hi because they knew him and stuff, and, and he invited us to go out evangelizing. Everybody, everybody's like, right now? It's 10 p.m.? He goes, yeah, let's go. Well, I was the only person that said yes because I was young and dumb and now, you know, 20-something. I'm like, let's go. Let's, let's walk into the jungle in the middle of the night. That sounds great. And so, uh, 
So I say yes, and me and this guy that I just met drive for about an hour out into the middle of nowhere. And it, when I say the jungle, guys, it wasn't like a town. We are in the jungle, and we've got flashlights. And we finally get to a place. There was one street light, kind of in the middle of four um, dirt roads, and that's where we parked our cars. And he says, okay, there's two villages. There's one to the right and one to the left. He said, I'm gonna go to the one to the right. You go to the one to the left. And I was like, what did you just say? I thought we'd go together since we're in a jungle and it's 11 o'clock at night. He goes, no, 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 man, just trust the Lord. And uh, so we, we can cover more ground. And being 20, however old I was and stupid, I was like, yeah. And so I grabbed my flashlight and I walk literally into the darkness. And he said, there's a village that's probably about a half a mile away. So I'm walking over this half mile, realizing just how dumb of a decision that I just made. Sure enough, we, I, my, myself and Jesus, walk up to this village. There's no light. You see a couple of flickering candles inside grass huts. No exaggeration, a grass hut. And I thought, okay, what do I do now, right? And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna come knock on a door. So, so I, I go and I, I knock on one of the doors and this lady and her kid comes walking out and they look at me. And I'm, I'm like, you know, it's never dawned on me what I'm going to say in this moment. Here I am, young gringo, walking up in the middle of the night in a grass hut. And so I, I said, hey, I'm a Christian, and I just want to come and talk to you about Jesus or something. And, and she's like, no hablo inglés, right? And uh, I was like, oh, okay. And she closed the door and shut the door. And in that moment, it hits me that, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. Like, this is so dumb. It's 11.30 by this point. I'm in the middle of the night. I'm in a jungle. I'm the only white guy for 600 miles, and, and I, I'm wasting my time. So I started walking back, and I'm sitting there under the streetlight at this crossroads waiting for this guy to come back. It's probably 8.45 or 11.45 by this point. I'm getting a little scared. I have no idea where this guy is. His car's still there, but, and so I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, this kid comes walking up. This is a true story, by the way. This kid comes walking straight up to me. He was about 11 or 12 years old. He was obviously going from somewhere to the village. He lived there. And he actually spoke English, which was cool. And he looks at me and he says, sir, are, are you okay? You know, and uh, what's going on? And, and I was like, well, I was like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian pastor. You know, we're out and we're telling people about Jesus. And, and he's says, what do, you, what do you mean? You're telling people about Jesus. And so I started a conversation with him, short story, long story short. I share the gospel with him. Right there in the middle of the night, this 12-year-old kid accepts Christ right there in the middle of the jungle. And what hit me, it was like, I didn't have to go to him. The Lord just brought him to me. I'm like, God, you're awesome, man. This is great. Bring him to me. And... And so I'm sitting there and I get his information. I found out where he, where he lived in the, in the village, in the hut down the, down the way so I could give it to the pastor. And I'm really excited and then all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, this is one of those things that I would call my mom and tell her about, you know. Like, mom, can you believe what just happened? I'm in the middle of a jungle in Bolivia. This kid walks up to me and I lead him to Christ. This wave of sadness just came over me. I actually started crying. 
and I prayed this prayer to the Lord. And, and it, looking back, it just kind of came out of me. I said, God, does my mom know what just happened? I prayed that prayer. I was like, Lord, does my mom know what just happened? Looking back, it was just a rhetorical question. The scripture says that when one sinner repents, that the angels rejoice. And so I was like, God, does my mom, because she loved Jesus. Does she, does she see that? Does she, does she know? And it's a rhetorical question. I didn't expect the Lord to answer the question, but in just a few minutes, he did. He answered it. Stopped praying, waited there a few minutes, waiting for the pastor to come back. And then I remember looking up and way down the road, I can still see it in my mind, way, 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 way down the road, probably about a mile, I see this guy walking towards the car. And at first I thought it was the pastor coming back. So I was like, oh, awesome, finally. I can't wait to tell this guy what happened. And as the guy gets closer to me, I realized that it was not the pastor. It was a young guy who was in his early 20s, I think. He had a guitar strapped on his back and he's walking straight toward me. First thing that goes through my mind is like, God, you're bringing me another one. Here we go, here we go. Just bringing him in to me tonight, God. And so in my mind, I'm like, God, number two, I'm gonna bring the second guy to Christ. It's gonna be a great sermon illustration one day. And so sure enough, the guy comes walking right up to me and he speaks English also. And, and we start talking, we're making small talk and I'm looking for an angle to kind of begin to talk to him about the Lord, to make some kind of connection. I see he's got a guitar on his back. And I said, hey man, so you play the guitar? And he goes, yeah, I do. Local indigenous guy. And I said, what kind of music do you play? He said, oh, I play everything. I play rock, I play country, I play all kinds of stuff. And I said, awesome, why don't you play me a song? He said, okay. He said, what song do you want me to play? And I said, you pick, you choose, you just play anything you want. Now, this guy doesn't know I'm a Christian. He has no idea who I am at this point. I haven't shared what I'm doing or why I'm there. <laughs> and as God is my witness, that guy pulled out his guitar and he started playing because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Some of y'all think I'm making that up. You're gonna get to heaven. You know, it's a true story. dude started singing because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future that life is worth the living just because he lives and in that moment it hit me I just prayed God does my mom know this guy walks up I don't know if he was an angel I don't he was. This guy walks up in the middle of a jungle and plays the one song out of all the millions of songs that I would have connected to my mother. I don't remember much. After that moment, I remember this. I remember I walked away and lost. I lost it. Started bawling because two things hit me. Number one, what hit me is that was God's way of saying, yes, your mom knows what happened. And the second thing that hit, hit me is how much he must love me and how much he must value me to do something that miraculous and that powerful just for a grieving 23-year-old kid that missed his mom. I told that story years ago in a sermon. God walks up to me 
He looks at me and he says, man, that was powerful. He said, I wish God would show up and do something crazy and powerful like that in my life just to show me that he loved and valued me. He said, I need it. And some of y'all may be sitting here right now thinking the same thing, like, man, how amazing would it be for God to sort of show up and do something so definitively powerful and miraculous that it, it, it left me beyond a shadow of a doubt knowing his love and value for me. Some of y'all may be thinking that right now. And so I'm gonna say to you what I wish I would have said to that guy 20 years ago. God already has does some, done something in your life and shown up in a way that's so powerful and miraculous that, that leaves no shot of a doubt that he loves you and he values you more than your wildest imagination. It's called Christmas. When he left heaven, came to this planet to pay for your sin and to show you just how valuable as an individual you are to him. And in the 1840s, some non-believing French guy maybe wrote it better than anybody outside of the scripture. Oh, holy night, stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. Here's our response. Fall on your Oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night that Christ was born.